I am excited about the word today. If y'all feel like hearing it, like I feel like preaching it, it's going to be good. Did you come to get a word from God? Amen. Would you look at with me the two passages of scripture? I want to jump straight to it. I want to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, and then John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Genesis 3, 8 through 11, and then John 14, 1 through 6. And even before we read the scripture, let me just kind of set up uh, the trajectory of where we're going today. Because it's really important for you to understand that the Bible is not a collection of disconnected stories from which we just extract random principles and cute messages to post as memes. But in actuality, the Bible is a single story of how the world was created how it got messed up, and what our Savior has done to redeem it. As a matter of fact, I could give you the Bible in three words. You ready? Creation, devastation, restoration. He made it. We messed it up. (laughs) He made it new and continues to make all things new. So the Bible's a single story. So I kind of want to say that at the beginning to set up while we're reading Genesis and the verse in John. Cool? Good? Okay. Verse 8, it says, When they, this is Adam and Eve, when they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden. Hid from God. <laughs> Ain't that messed up. If there's anybody you, want, you don't want to play hide and go seek with, it's God. Okay? <laughs> And God called to the man, where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat from? John chapter 14, starting at verse number one, and this is, this is the words of Jesus. It says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't, Lord, (laughs) Thomas said. That makes me laugh. That makes me laugh because that's classic church people because sometimes, you know, somebody can say something real spiritual and real deep and people like to pretend like they know what they're talking about. I'm like, "Mm, Thomas was the only one that kept it real. He's like, "Uh, no, we don't. We don't know where you're going. You're always talking in riddles and mysteries. We don't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth, Jesus. What are you talking about? We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Can you say amen? Come on, that's good stuff. That is good stuff. I'm going to preach today, not long, uh, probably about six and a half hours. (laughs) Just using this as a title, questions answered. Questions answered answer. Come on, let's pray and let's ask God to speak to us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every single person across every campus, even watching online in their bathrobe, they're not watching today by accident, but by your divine providence. Holy Spirit, speak to us. And when we finish today, let us say it was so good to have been in the presence of Jesus. And somebody loves Jesus. Say amen. Amen. Say amen again. Questions answered. 
Are there any married people in the house today across every campus? Any married people? In fact, let's, let's do it all. All the married people, just make some noise if you're married. Make some noise. Yeah. See, immediately all the single people are mad at me right now because they're like, really, really? You just got to single us out like that? The single people, I'm not singling you out. I'm actually helping you out, helping you out. Because if you have interest in anybody in your immediate proximity and they just did not make some noise... Hello, somebody. After this service, you can say, hey, where are you going to eat? There's no reason either one of us should eat alone. Helping you out. Helping you out. Um, I'll give my woohoo. I'm married. I've been married now for five years. And uh, like every man in here, I vividly remember the moment, the day that I mustered up the nerve, the audacity, the unmitigated gall to ask a woman to spend the rest of her life with me. I think I've even told the story before. I took my wife, Taylor to an ice sculpture exhibit, took her to an ice sculpture exhibit, and as we're walking around perusing through the ice sculpture exhibit, little did she know that I had them carve out an ice, will you marry me? And so we get to the place where it was, and she was standing right in front of it, it was behind her, and when we got there, I was nervous, it was cold in there, but I was still sweating. And uh, I looked at her, and I did what every man does when he's talking to a woman he's in love with, I dropped my voice real low, and I said, baby, turn around. She said, why? I said, baby, turn around. She turned around and she saw carved out in ice, will you marry me? And then when she turned back around, I was down on one knee with some more ice. Come on, somebody. (laughs) And I asked her to be my wife. Spoiler alert, she said yes. And uh, at that moment, we officially became engaged. Now, while we were engaged, we did something that I strongly encourage every engaged couple to do. We went to premarital counseling. Premarital counseling. Premarital counseling is awesome. It is amazing. The reason it's amazing is because every man and every woman on planet Earth is crazy. And (laughs) you just got to figure out which crazy you want to wake up to every day. Uh, Old school mentor in my life, I'll never forget it when I was dating. He said, Robert, just pick somebody and deal with it. Okay. So we're talking to this amazing premarital counselor, an amazing woman of God, has a great marriage. And I don't remember all the sessions, but I vividly remember our last session. Our last session, I was talking to this counselor and I said, hey, would you just give me just a few more bullet points, some things that you and your husband have done that have been helpful for your marriage? She said a few things that I heard before, but then she said something that I had never heard and I still remember to this day. She said, Robert, you know, my husband and I, have found it's very helpful to have a schedule. I said, a schedule? She said, yes. She says, believe it or not, life can get hectic, it can get busy, and whatever gets scheduled gets done. So we schedule date nights, and and believe it or not, we even schedule nights of intimacy. Now, let me go third person for a moment. When she said that, the Robert that was in the room said, ah, a schedule, that's lovely. But the Robert in my mind said, a schedule? Are you for real? You got to schedule a date night? What kind of messed up marriage do you have that you got to schedule a date night with your, you schedule nights of intimacy? Ma'am, I've been waiting 27 years for these nights of intimacy. It's on the schedule every day. What are you talking about? You got a schedule? I don't need the counseling. You do. We need to switch chairs. 
that is what naive, slightly narcissistic, newly engaged Robert thought. That's what I thought, okay? Fast forward five years later, three kids under three later, one demonic dog later, 4,789 diapers later, 1,823 sleepless nights later, 10,999 toddler temper tantrums later. Ladies and gentlemen, can I humbly confess, that counselor was right. Ooh, she was right. She was beyond right. It's not just helpful to have a schedule. A schedule is the only way you can survive the relentless, vicious attack of your own offspring. You gotta have a schedule. Ooh, I'm, I'm gonna be honest, I'm just gonna keep it 100. This ain't even to be funny. Uh, not too distant past, we had a scheduled date night, right? My wife and I scheduled date night, and my parents came over to watch our three little humans, and, and, and just the sheer thought of putting on decent clothes and, and going to an establishment other than Chick-fil-A was so exhausting that my wife and I pretended to leave the house, waited till our kids were in another room, came back into the house and silently and gingerly tiptoed up the stairs and went into a bedroom and just laid down. Laid down. That was date night. We laid down. I'm not talking about in the biblical sense like Abraham laid with Sarah, his Isaac. No. I'm talking about in the literal sense. We just laid down and looked at the ceiling and said, no weapon formed against me shall be able to prosper. And every child that rises up against me God will condemn. Ooh, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Guess what dessert was? You know what dessert was? We watched what we wanted to watch on TV. That was dessert. I'm going to say that again so the people with young kids can shout. We watched what we wanted to watch on TV. Yes, for 45 minutes. No Mickey, Disney, Minnie, Elena, Sophia, Elsa, Anna, or Mohana. We finally got control of our life and started with the remote control. And uh, isn't it funny? <laughs> isn't it funny that the schedule that I once ridiculed is now a very real reality in my life. Isn't it funny, the schedule that I once scoffed at is something that I now take very serious. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the tone, this is the tenor of John chapter 14, and you have to fill the room because Jesus is in the upper room with his closest companions, his closest disciples, the crowds have left. The multitudes have gotten their miracles and gone. Even Judas, the original hater, has left the room. And it is just Jesus with his closest disciples. This moment is the epitome of intimacy. And in less than 24 hours, he is going to be incarcerated, mocked, humiliated, flesh lacerated, as he hangs on a cross between two thieves, left for his own lungs to suffocate in his own blood. And the disciples' hearts are in complete turmoil and anguish that their hero is about to die. Which really begs the question, why? Why are their hearts so troubled that their Savior is about to die? How many of you know Jesus' death was not a surprise? He had been telling them the whole time, I am going to go to a cross and die. His mission statement was crystal clear. For three years, he had told them, guess what? I am here for one reason. That is to seek and save the lost. To seek and save the lost. I'm not just here to be a good teacher. I'm not just here to give you miracles. I am here to seek and save the lost. That is my mission. How 
how many of you know his mission is still the mission of the church today? That is to seek and save the lost. Come on, not just to have cute church services and sing songs off a screen like it's Christian karaoke, but we are here to seek and save the lost. You want to know why we're doing Easterland, why you're doing Easterland next weekend? Not so kids can get candy and eggs, but that is a mission to seek and save the lost because there's people who are hurting and broken. But Jesus was clear, if they're going to be saved, the lost that I'm seeking, I must go to a cross and I must die. This was not a surprise. They knew it was going to happen. So why are their hearts troubled? I think it's because every time Jesus talked about his death, the disciples were kind of like naive, narcissistic, newly engaged Robert. And every time he talked about his death, they were like, death. <laughs> yeah, right, Jesus, all the power you got, who in the world's going to kill you? But now all of a sudden in that upper room. That which they thought was ridiculous has now become a very present and real reality. Who can we just pause for a moment, just talk, it's just us. Have you ever thought something was ridiculous in one season of your life only to see that thing become a real reality? Oh, I know you can't say anything. Have you ever thought, huh, my child get on drugs? That's ridiculous. My child's been to Sunday school. I prayed for them. Matter of fact, he's on the honor roll. I got the bumper sticker. Oh, that is ridiculous. But now it's a real reality. What, me and John get a divorce? Oh, no, you don't understand. That's my man. He's my soulmate. We'll never separate. But that's what you thought was ridiculous. has now become a real present reality. And Jesus pierces through their fears, their tears, their anxiety, and ignites them with one single word that he speaks to us today. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. I don't know who I'm preaching to today, but I feel like somebody came to church just to get that simple scripture. Don't don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus. Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus. Notice he does not say that you will not face trouble. As a matter of fact, how many of you know being a disciple does not mean you get a visa on a pa or a pass on trouble? As a matter of fact, in another verse, he guarantees they will have trouble. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I've already overcome the world. So Jesus is saying, I'm not saying the trouble's not going to come around you. What I am saying is, don't let the trouble around you get in you. Oh, come on. That's the fight of your life. To not let the trouble around you get in you, that is the fight of your life. Come on, that's why I come to church on Sunday to get a word from God because I'm trying to stop the trouble around me from getting in me. That's why I lift up my hands in worship and I'll get loud. I don't care if I'm getting on your nerves. You don't know the trouble that's going on around me and I'm trying to stop the trouble around me from getting in me. That's why I gotta give God my best praise because of what's going on around me. Ooh, he says, don't let the trouble around you get in you because if it gets in you, it's going to taint your trust. How many know when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust in me? How many know that's not a suggestion, that's a commandment? This is what my three-year-old is struggling to understand. That when I say don't do something... <laughs> That's not a suggestion. That is a commandment. So Jesus is saying, I command your heart not to be troubled. 
I command you not to be stressed out. I command you not to have anxiety. I command you not to be worried about that situation. So if you're here today or watching along at another campus and something is troubling your heart, here's what Jesus is saying. Stop it. Stop it. Now we laugh. You know why we laugh? Because how many of you know that is easier said than done? How in the world am I not supposed to let the trouble around me get in me? Jesus, I don't think you understand my situation. I just lost my job. They're about to take my car. I'm already drowning in debt, but I'm not supposed to let the trouble around me get in me. Jesus, the doctor just said that the cancer is spreading in my body, but I'm not supposed to let the trouble around me get in me. I don't think you understand. That person who I thought I could trust lied right in my face and stabbed me in the back, but I'm not supposed to let the trouble around me get in me? Jesus says, yeah. How many know that is impossible? Jesus goes, exactly. It is impossible for you not to let the trouble around you get in you. If you think you can be in this world and the trouble around you not get in you, you in big trouble. Because the only way the trouble around you is not going to get in you is when you understand that this world is not your home. When you understand that I have a place that I've already prepared for you, that is the only way that the trouble around you is not going to get in you. He tells the disciples what he tells us. He says, I have a place that I've already prepared for you. And the only way the trouble around you won't get in you is when you know that this earth is not your home. In other words, the cure, the cure for a troubled heart is the confident assurance that this world is not my home. This is not my home. I am a stranger in this earth. I am an alien in this earth. Heaven is my real home. The reason I'm not having a nervous breakdown is because this ain't my home. The reason I can watch the news and see what's going on in government and not lose my mind is I know this world is not my home. The reason I can go to a crazy job and still have my peace and still have my joy is because I know this world is not my home. Look at your neighbor and say, this ain't your home. It's not your home. At best, watch this, at best, it's a hotel. But it's not home. This is not a home. It's a hotel. Come on, how many know you act different in a hotel than you do at home? Oh, you got a totally different disposition when you're in a hotel. Come on, take it for somebody who's traveled for the last 14 years of my life. There's not been a single week that I'm not in a hotel. And I must honestly confess that I have never, never walked into a hotel and gone in and said, can I speak with the manager, please? I just want to know before I check in. How are we doing on the light bill? Are we good? I just want to make sure all the lights are paying. Like, are we paying all the bills? I don't want to go in my room and cut on the light and don't go out. No, I'm not worried about it. It's not my home. It's just a hotel. I've never called room service and say, before you bring up this burger, can you please hurry? Because I'm afraid that you're going to run out of food. No, it's not my home. It's just a hotel. Now, that is not to say that I walk around the hotel and I live carelessly and do whatever I want. Because you understand that even in the hotel, my job is to represent the test testimony of Jesus. Uh, Come on, somebody, follow the illustration. Everywhere I go, the testimony of Jesus' name is on the line. So even in the hotel, I am praying that I would change the atmosphere of the hotel, that I would be Jesus with skin on. When I get on the elevator, people whose heads were down, that their heads would be lifted. As I talk to them, I'm trying to shift the culture of the hotel, but the hotel is not my home. Can I take the illustration further? I have stayed in some nasty hotels. Some nasty hotels, some raggedy hotel. I have stayed in some hotels where I was convinced that somebody got murdered. 
and the body was still in the room, okay? I have stayed in some nasty, nasty hotels. I'll tell you this, people church, because we family now. Uh, not too, uh, long time ago, long time ago, I was traveling, I was at this church, and this pastor dropped me off at this nasty hotel. Nasty, like I walked in, and the roaches were like, are you for real gonna stay here? Nasty <laughs> hotel. And, and there was a nicer hotel, there was a nicer hotel like five blocks up the street from this hotel. And so I wanted to switch hotels, but I was afraid because the pastor was picking me up the next morning for service. I said, if I switch hotels, he's going to see that I switch. He's going to call me bougie and start talking about me. So I was, I was in a precarious predicament. So I called my father up, called my father, called my dad up for some advice, called my dad, called ooh, my Nigerian dad. I said, dad, um, I'm in this, this Roach Motel. I said, I, I want to switch. But will it look bad in the morning if the pastor picks me up and I'm at the different hotel? My father, who was Nigerian, said, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. It's always bad when it starts out, oh my goodness. Of course it will look bad, son. You mean to tell me that you can't stay in one nasty hotel for one night, just one night? You mean to tell me that the Apostle Paul can be shipwrecked and beaten and people killed for the gospel, but you can't stay in one hotel that's for one night, son, preach the gospel and come home. What is wrong with you? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Hung up the phone, stayed in the Roach Motel because I knew that that hotel, it wasn't my home. You be shocked what you can endure when you know it is not your home. Oh, come on, can I take the illustration further? I have stayed, I have stayed in some amazing hotels. Oh, where the ambiance is incredible, where the aesthetic will take your breath away. I'm talking about hotels where they change the flowers in the lobby every day. I'm talking about hotels where the service is impeccable, the food is sensational, and the pools are palatial. I'm talking about when you walk in, they got free sunglasses, free sun tanning oil. I don't even suntan, but it's free. I'm like, give me, come on, give me this. I'm talking about amazing, amazing hotels. Hotels that make you want to stay an extra two days, but even in the amazing, incredible, beautiful, illustrious hotel, can I be honest with you? Even after about six days in that hotel, by the sixth day, I'm like, this is nice. This is beautiful, but I'm ready to go home. I am ready to go home. I want to sit on my couch. It might not be a designer couch, but at least it's my couch and it's paid for. I want to go home. Isn't it funny how humans, we have this longing for home. You know why? Because you have a savior that has prepared a place for you. This earth is not your home. That's the only way you can endure the trouble. He says, I have a place for you. Every human, whether you admit it or not, we have a proclivity to have a place. We are wired to know our where. We've got to know where we fit. That's why you sit in the same seat every Sunday. Sit in the same section, park in the same parking lot, uh-huh, and got an attitude when somebody in your seat, like, mm, no, God bless you. No, it's fine, it's fine. I only sit there every Sunday. But no, it's good, no, it's good. Isn't it funny how every human has a place? I've seen homeless people, homeless people, fight over a curb of concrete, a curb of homeless, but say, hey man, Jimmy, you know I've been standing right here on this corner since 1963. That place, why? We're wired to know our place. We're wired to know our where. And God says the only way that you're ever going to face the trouble around you is to know that I've prepared a place for you. He says there's room in my father's house. He calls it the father's house. Now, what is the father's house? I'll tell you plainly. The father's house is heaven. 
Heaven is the Father's house. And if you're a student of the Word, you're acutely aware of the fact that the Bible uses a myriad of metaphors to describe heaven. Uh, one place in the Bible, heaven is called a country because of its vastness. Another place, heaven is called a city because of its inhabitants. Another place in the Bible, heaven is called the kingdom because we serve a God who is a king and he has rule and he has order. On the cross, Jesus calls heaven paradise because of its beauty and its splendor. But in the text today, the reason that heaven is called the Father's house is because he is trying to articulate to us that, watch this, we are called to be a family. A family. Heaven is going to be the family reunion that you actually want to go to. He said, this is a family. Come on, make no mistake. There's a reason why at the end of every service you shout, we are family. It is a biblical principle. That's what he's trying to get his disciples to understand. That in the same way you didn't get to pick your family, but you still got to work it out with them, is the same way you don't get to pick people that you think should be in the family of God. Come on, somebody. How many are thankful for his grace that has enough room for so many people in the family. There's room for you in God's family. Woo, you a liar, there's room for you in his family. You got all kinds of issues, so do we. Come on, there's room in the family of God. That's what he's trying to get the disciples to understand because they thought that Jesus had a little elite clique and he was gonna overthrow the Roman government and just pick people that just look like them and talk like them. But he says, no, let me let you know right now. In my father's house, there is a lot of room. There's room for people that don't vote like you, look like you, shop like you. That's why I often say, some of you need to hang out with people that are different than you so when you get to heaven, you don't have culture shock because God has so much grace, so much room in his house. He said, there's a lot of room in my father's house, but he says, but there's only one door. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Now, think with me for a moment. I'm almost done. But understand that Jesus' self-disclosure of himself saying, I'm the way, the truth, and life only came because Thomas asked a question. He said, we don't know the way. We don't know how to get there. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He gives a three-part answer to one question. But what is the context by which Jesus is saying this? He's talking about a home, a prepared place that God has for us. And remember, the Bible is a single story, not a collection of disconnected stories. So it got me thinking, when did humanity lose home? You remember when we lost home? Didn't we have a prepared place? That's right. In the Garden of Eden, he prepared a place for Adam and Eve. That was our original home. Come on, you remember when we lost home? Y'all were super saved. You floating in the room. You had communion for breakfast. You know what happened. Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit, and the moment they were disobedient, we got evicted from our home. And since that moment to today, all of humanity has been wandering, trying to find our place, trying to find where we fit. That's why some of you saw Black Panther and had on all kinds of gear, because there's something on the inside of you that says there's home. There's just a human predicament to want to know where home is. We lost home in the Garden of Eden. So in John, he gives a three-part answer to one question. But in Genesis, he judged Adam and Eve with three questions. He asked them three questions before they got evicted from home. Are you still with me? He took Adam and Eve and he put them on the counseling couch and he said, okay, let's have a post-marital counseling session. Who post-marital counseling is awesome. Post-marital counseling is just as good as premarital counseling. You know why? Because every man and every woman on planet Earth is crazy. And you just got to figure out what crazy you want to wake up to every day. And he asked Adam and Eve three questions. Three questions. Why is he asking questions? If you've ever been to a counseling session, you understand 
that when you're seeing that counselor, you're not paying that counselor to fix you. You're not paying that counselor, watch this, to tell you that your spouse is so messed up, but you're actually paying that counselor to ask you questions. That's why that counselor is there, to ask you the right questions so you yourself can find the answer. So that's why you'll be sitting in the counselor chair and they'll ask you, how did that make you feel? They're asking a question to get the right answer. God asked Adam and Eve three questions that I want to explore today because it's the only way we're going to find out how you get home. Are you ready? Question number one from God was, where are you? Somebody say, where are you? The first question of God was, where are you? How many know when God asks a question, the answer is not for him? He knows the end from the beginning. It is always for you. He says, where are you? You know what where are you speaks to? It speaks to the fact that humanity is spiritually lost. He was not asking for Adam and Eve's physical location. He could see them. He was trying to get them to realize where they were, that now you are spiritually lost. This is the state of all of humanity, that we are spiritually lost. And until you know where you are, how many know you will never find your way back home? Until you can admit that you are lost, that you are too messed up, that's why you need a savior. How many know you will never get a breakthrough being prideful and thinking you got it all together, but you got to admit that you don't know where you are till you're lost and admit that you're lost. You can never find your way home. He says, where are you? He is speaking to the fact that all of humanity is spiritually lost, lost without him. He is the great initiator, lost without him. I know some of you, your testimony is, oh, I was messed up, but hallelujah, I found Jesus. Change your testimony. You didn't find Jesus. He was never lost. How many of you know he found you? He's the one that sought after you. He's the one that came after you. Where are you speaks to the fact that all of humanity is lost. How many of you like me, you directionally challenged? Anybody directionally challenged? How many of you when you lost, how many of you use the Maps app? Anybody use the Maps app on your iPhone? Because if you're really saved, you got an iPhone. Um, anybody use the Maps app? How many of you use Google Maps? Anybody use Google Maps? Google Maps? How many of you next level like me have found an app that will change your life? Anybody use Waze? Oh, come on, I'm going to put you on game. Ways will bless your life. Ways, I'm telling you, ways will break down barriers to get you to your destination. Ways will take you through a family's living room to get you to your destination. Ways will tell you stuff that you didn't even ask the app to tell you. There's a car parked on the road five miles ahead. Ways will tell you that the popo is going to be there on your left. Ways will give you information you didn't, Ways will tell you your breast stinks. Ways is awesome. And I'm just thinking about God. I think he's the ways app because all of us are spiritually lost but I'm thinking for God because he has a specificity he knows how to get you and your unique lostness back to him how many are thankful for a God who knows how to speak you oh he knows what it takes to break you down he knows how to orchestrate scenarios to get you to finally realize I'm lost without you he says where are you first question Adam's response he says I was afraid because I was naked so I hid that was his answer. Adam's answer got him two more questions. Classic counseling session. Your answer can get you two more questions. He says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So God asked another question. He says, who told you you were naked? Then he asked him, did you eat of that tree that I told you not to eat from? Question number two who told you you were naked? Adam, you've always been naked. 
why now are you ashamed of the way that I created you? Uh, I think the most loaded question God has ever asked humanity is who told you? Because who told you deals with the fact that many of us have embraced a lie from the enemy as truth. And the only thing scarier than a lie is a lie that you embrace as truth. Who told you that? Why do you think there's something wrong with you? I know you can't say anything, but you'd be shocked at the person right now who is wrestling with the weight of a who told you. Who told you you were dumb? Who told you you were stupid? Who told you you were ugly? Isn't it funny how a who told you can change your entire life and you can hold on to it for years and allow the enemy to beat you up with shame? A few weeks ago, we had some company over and my little girl was in the bathtub taking a bath. Comes out of the bathroom, butt naked. We had people over. Stands on the couch in front of everybody and says, Hey, I'm naked. Look at my booty. Hey, everybody. That's what we're working with. Pray for us. And... And we all laughed. We all laughed because she's three. It's innocent. But how many of you know when she turns seven or 16, I don't have to tell her you don't do that. She will learn very quickly to cover and to hide. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden. Humanity lost innocence. And still today, all of us are hiding, hiding behind your job, hiding behind your Instagram posts, hiding because we don't want anybody to see the real us because we're ashamed because we've embraced a lie as truth. Who told you that? Last question. Did you eat of that tree? That tree? What was that tree? In the garden, God put the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said the tree of life you cannot touch. That's all he told him. Don't touch it. How many know that tree jacked up the entire world? <laughs> That one tree, I'm thinking, God, you should have put a force shield around this tree. You should have put a letter saying, if you eat of this tree, it's going to mess up the entire world. Have you ever thought that the entire world got ruined simply because Adam and Eve did this right here? That's all they did. And that's what messed up the reason you're jealous of people right now. The reason there's murder and all kinds of evil. Because they ate of a tree. But if you think that only this action messed up the world... You're missing the forest because of the tree. Because with every action, there's an attitude of heart that precedes the action. Anything you do with your hand first starts in your heart. And there is a lie that the enemy got in the heart of Adam and Eve. And that lie is this. You can't trust God. That if you trust God, you're going to lose out on life. If you trust God, you're going to miss out on something. And once that lie got in their heart, they then said, I'm going to do what I want to do. That's what that tree is. Anytime you say, God, my ways are above your ways, and you say, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, how many of you know that liberty actually brings captivity and it puts you in bondage? Come on, somebody. Has anybody ever said, I'm going to do my own thing because my way is better, only to look back and say that liberty actually brought captivity into my life? And this is the state of humanity. We are spiritually lost. We've believed a lie that we've accepted as truth. All of us have tried to have our own liberty that's actually brought captivity. What do you do when you're spiritually lost? What do you do when there's a lie that you've embraced as truth? What do you do when you took matters in your own hands and all of a sudden the decisions you made have brought consequences and you're in captivity? You got to remember that the same questions that God asked in Genesis, how many are thankful that he answered 
it in the book of John. Questions got answered. He's always been the answer. He's always been the one saying, if you'll come to me, if you'll break down, I'll show you that I am the answer to every question. Are you spiritually lost? Where are you? Guess what? I'm the way. I'm the one that'll show you how to get to the place that I prepared for you. Who told you you were naked? Have you believed a lie as truth? Well, guess what? I am the truth. I am the thing that you need. Reject the lie of the enemy and hold on to the truth of what I say about you. Did you eat of that tree your own decisions? Well, how many are thankful over 2,000 years ago there was another tree that he hung his head on and he died. And if you eat from that tree, you can have life and everlasting life. I'm trying to tell you that he is the answer to every question. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He asked a question in Genesis that he answered in John. Are you lost? I'm the way. Have you embraced the lie as truth? Guess what? I am the truth. Not a truth. The truth. Have you taken of a tree of doing your own thing? I hung on a tree. So if you come to me, you could have everlasting life. Questions answered. 